Haggai. The prophecy of Haggai, chapter 2. Three comprises three revelations, two of them on the same day. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? That is, how many aged that could go all the way back to remembering Solomon's temple in its glory. It had been destroyed, of course, by the Babylonians, was rubble, but there evidently were a few who were as children then and came back as old people almost 70 years later who had some memory of the glory that still remained of temple of Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of uh, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, or if you will, labor, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And what he's saying, of course, is to stand strong in your conviction and continue to live according to your convictions and promote that which is righteousness and truth. So stand for what is right and true and live in that way and believe the promises of God that what you stand for will come to pass, whatever is the evil that you are now facing and having to deal with. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I shall shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts, that is, of all the earth, it's mine. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh, that is, bearing something that's going to the altar of burnt offering, holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. That is, that has been, it has been contaminated by this touching of that which is not meant for the 
the altar. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of thee, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. That is not fit for the altar of burnt offering. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hand, and that which they offer there is unclean. The reason is they're not coming with a proper heart and with the zeal that they, they ought. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord since those days were when one came to an heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the press fat for to draw 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. So there was a scarcity, you see, a, a chastisement by God so that the harvest was not what it once was. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day, will I bless you. So a promise of a change from the hand of the Lord as things progress. And now the words of our text. And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor, or if you will, overseer, ruler of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horse and their riders shall become, come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take the Ozerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, will make thee as a signet, that is a signet ring, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. What I'm going to preach to you this evening is a sermon I preached a month ago in another congregation reflecting upon the year past 2023 and looking ahead to the year 2024. Since this is but the first Sunday of the second month, I think we can still do that and it's still appropriate to do a little bit of reflecting upon what has passed us in the year 2023 and what we are going to face in 2024 upon our own lives and circumstances, but also things that have developed and sometimes steal headline news and talk about what's developing in our society at present. And also it's an occasion not only to consider the past and what is developing in world events and so on, but also what faces us in the future, in the coming year, in the year of our 2020. Four. And you may say, what faces us in 2024, 
we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. How do you dare to tell us what's going to happen in 2024? Well, I cannot tell you what's going to happen in 2024 in detail, but in general, I can tell you this. It's going to be more of the same as we dealt with in 2023. Is that good news? Does that encourage you? You may be inclined to say, let's hope not. And from a human point of view, that's understandable. Because if you reflect back on 2023, there was a lot of bad news and deterioration of all that we might say is good and right. The political scene, present administration, inept, corrupt, and increasingly, as becomes apparent, anti-Christian. Supposed to be federal government and other government, you know, for law and order, safety and security. And we have a government and administration and a judicial system that more and more promotes the rights of the criminals and takes away the power of the, those who enforce the law. And economically, what takes place the last few years, galloping inflation so that in a few years' time, whatever your worth may have been in real value, probably about three-fourths of what it was a year or two ago. And the only good news, inflation continues, but not quite as fast as it was last year, as if that's good news. But on the ecclesiastical scene, and where the church is going, that calls itself by the name of Christ to represent Christ in this world, the great apostasy, so that they take this, this book between the black covers and they, in the name of Christianity, challenge its truth and its relevant relevance and its trustworthiness in the name of Christ. And then more and more of those who go by the name of Christians not only believe the lie and promote the lie, but they promote immorality. And they fly rainbow flags in the name of Christ and associate his name with Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're going to escape judgment. And this is love that you do not disapprove of what the Bible calls immorality and sin, but approve of those lifestyles. And if you don't, and rebuke, that's hate. And one would say then, on the basis of that, the prophetic words are filled with hate, but it's turning everything on its ear in the name of Christ, you say, and in truth. And we could go on. The point is, beloved, that the horses are running. We mentioned those this morning, the opening of the seven-sealed book. And the white horse, horse goes out, but following them is the black, of course, the red and the black and the pale having to do with war and with economic injustice and inequalities and diseases and death 
themselves. They're running. The horsemen, beloved, are running. And they are running as the judgments of God in the earth with ever greater vigor and intensity. And it's not simply the opening of the seals. It's, at the, it's the opening of the seventh seal, which becomes the seven trumpets. And that's the intensification of the judgments of God upon a society and a world that becomes increasingly bold in its defiance of him and increases in its animosity towards the church as it would rebuke them and remind them of their sins. We are in the blowing of the trumpets just prior to the pouring out of the vials of wrath that will bring the whole of history to its conclusion. In a word, beloved, evil is prevailing in our day and age, and ungodliness and men and women dominate, it seems, every facet of society and of government and of power. And we who are numbered with the righteous are outmanned. And if you're in a certain direction, we'd be outgunned and certainly out voted and why go on why go on promoting truth why go on promoting righteousness why go on rebuking sin and immorality it's going to be silenced it's not righteousness that's going to be prevail it's unrighteousness that will prevail as time goes on as you well know and all we do in the way of promoting righteousness and truth and rebuking immorality and sin is call attention to ourselves and to our children and to our children's children. And when they get weary of it in our testimony, what are they going to do? It's going to be a persecution and an outbreak of animosity. And the face of all that, the hands hang down, and the knees become feeble. What to do? Beloved, what we're called to do is to turn to the word of God in such circumstances, and to consider his word and his promises, and to take heart according to the promises. And in this evening we turn to the word of God that comes through Haggai as he had to deal with a people who were discouraged. Discouraged by the power that ruled mighty Persia and the circumstances in their own land by what they were facing and what they were, were dealing with but the word of God reminding them through Haggai that the Messiah is coming and he is the one in the end who is enthroned and whether you can see it or not he is working all things to the defeat of unrighteousness in the end and judgment upon them that truth and righteousness may prevail and those who stand for truth and righteousness, who keep their convictions, may indeed, may indeed be cel celebrate and be blessed 
in the end and have the victory. So with that in mind, turn to this prophetic word and to the theme, prophetic encouragement in discouraging times. A discouraged people, Jehovah's earth-shaking encouragement, and sealed with a promised ring called a signet ring, but it's the, the ring that is promised, this signet ring. Prophetic encouragement in discouraging times. When it comes to the Church of Christ in history, there are striking parallels between the church and remnant to which Haggai had to minister and preach and the church of the 21st century, the day and age in which we live. Haggai was what we call a post-exilic prophet, of course, one of the three, meaning he prophesied following the return of the exiles, about 50,000 from the Babylonian captivity to the promised land and to somehow restore the promised land to that which was livable. Haggai came with the original 50,000 along with Zechariah who was his contemporary. Zechariah the other minor prophet. Malachi would be born in the promised land some, and prophesy some 75 to 90 years later in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Haggai as the contemporary of Zechariah is one who prophesies to the exiles who have just recently returned. And they have returned knowing that what faced them was an arduous task of somehow, if you will, re-civilizing the, the land which was so devastated and filled with ruins. But they returned with expectations and with great hope because when they read the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all three, without exception, associated the return from the captivity and the lifting of the judgment with the coming of the messianic kingdom and the appearance of the Messiah, that great promised son of David. And they came back with that hope and with that expectation. But of course, waiting for them in the land were the original Palestinians, I suppose we might label them, the Samaritans who had filtered into the, the land and would prove when the Jews came back to be an unending, unending source and cause of opposition and disturbance and every, every kind of discouragement. And as they came to the land, they had not realized the extent of the devastation and what that land had turned to after 70 years, basically, of neglect. And they began to labor as best they could, and they had to clear the streets of Jerusalem and get to where the temple was. And it was arduous labor, time-consuming, energy de debilitating and in time, even after they finally cleared the rubble and the ruin and put down a foundation for the, for the temple, they began to realize we don't have really the resources and the, and the material to build anything that is really substantial to compare with what 
it was in its foregone glory. They came home, you know, thinking this is going to be the day and age in which the son of David is going to appear and he's going to give us a certain independence from Persia, the great anti-Christian power, give us status once again, and there's going to be safety and security and agricultural abundance along with righteousness in the land. That was their hope and expectation. And it seemed that nothing of the sort occurred. Every obstacle, it seemed, there was faced them and the time-consuming and the lack of material and resources. And finally, they began to lose heart and they lost their kingdom zeal in the face of all these difficulties and obstacles and the enemies that faced them as well. And they lost the kingdom zeal, as I had said, and they began to forsake the spiritual and let's just tend to our property, to our homes, to our fields, and do the best we can to prosper agriculturally. And the Lord chastised them for the diminishing of their zeal and bringing sacrifices to the, to the altar. And there was agricultural shortage as well. And on top of it all, where is the Messiah? Where is the appearance of the promised son of David? Zerubbabel is a wonderful fellow, but it's transparent. He is not the one to give us independence from Persia and to establish this kingdom along the manner of David and his son Solomon. That's for sure. So this discouragement and the words of the prophet that are so necessary, not only admonitions and reproofs, but promises as well to send them on their way. What's striking and interesting is that that discouragement did not only set into the remnant of those who returned just after the Babylonian captivity, but if you go into the first century of the Christian church, you will find in the day of the apostles, the age of the apostles, there was a discouragement that also set into the early Christian church. They were converted from the Gentile world. They were converted with the promise the Messiah has come. They talked, the apostles talked about the apostolic kingdom. They talked about the end of the destruction of unrighteousness and of sin and being set free. And they talked about the promise of the everlasting kingdom of those who believed in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus and his coming again upon the clouds as he had left. Lord, haste the day. And the years went by. And the apostles preached. And he didn't return. And Rome remained in power. And it wasn't just immoral Roman power, but as the years went by the decades with the apostles, Rome became more and more anti-Christian. As Rome herself had, you who knew your world history, maybe high school teaches you some of this, Rome had her internal civil social issues that was troubling Rome in the first century, I'll tell you that, and trying to keep and the powers that be trying to keep a, a, a hold on it, a lid on it, disturbances and catast catastrophic events even happening according to the judgments of God. And the 
priests of the false gods had to give an explanation why these things were occurring and they handed the Roman authorities an answer. It's the Christian's fault. There's conversions and people are leaving the pagan gods and the pagan gods, our gods, are angry. And so there's all this turmoil and all this division. Blame the Christians. That's why the first, you know, the apostle Peter had to say along with John, don't think it's so strange about the fiery trials which are about to try you and the persecution that's coming. You're going to have to count the cost. And it's one thing for us to stand here and say, yeah, they should count the cost. But when you're in it and you're losing property and your lives are being threatened and the Messiah doesn't come, one becomes discouraged. Where is the promise of his coming? Remember, Peter says, they say, where is the promise of his coming? To defeat all this unrighteousness and to preserve us against all this wickedness, not only of ourselves, but of our children and our children's children. Lord, who will keep us? Why go on? Why call attention to ourselves? Why promote righteousness? Evil simply continues to prevail. And the ungodly have the power on every, every hand. And the apostles, if you read some of the epistles of Peter and of, of John, have to give encouragement in those times just like Haggai here. When I want to remind ourselves of this evening, the loved, is that we are in a similar stage, if you will, in a similar age already mentioned from the political point of view and the economic point of view and the social point of view and the ecclesiastical point of view, even that so-called Christianity turning against faithful Christianity say we want nothing to do with them. They're not of us. Do with them as you will. They're the troublemakers. They're problem over there. That's why there's so much disturbance in society. So many troubles. It's these conservative, and not simply conservative, conservative Christians. That's the problem. We may have to silence them, you know. Consider, beloved, where we're at these days. We are in what I would call a spiritual, moral, ethical swamp of insanity. And what I have just labeled as a spiritual, ethical, moral swamp of insanity, I can exemplify by one word, a word that just a year or so ago we would have had no understanding of. But I say the word and right away you're going to know what I'm talking about. It's a word that's spelled W-O-K-E. The woke mentality. A new word on the horizon. And you know right away what exemplifies, exemplifies the woke mentality. Males claiming to be females and having the right to go into female locker rooms not only and compete with females but into the showers as well. And females if they don't want to claim to be males claiming they're kittens, cats or who knows, kangaroos. You have to satisfy them all. 
And it's not simply a matter that you have many who are claiming to be what they're not. That's always gone on. You can find that in every level of society. But we're in an age right now, beloved, where the powers that be say, you must honor those claims in work and in schools. And if you don't honor those claims, we are going to penalize you. And if you object to it in work because some female comes into the male bathroom and you question that, you may be fired. You may be terminated. And if your business doesn't make allowances, we may shut you down. It's to be honored and to be recognized by law, the powers that be say. That's where things are at. That rational insanity, beloved, ought not so much to surprise us. This spirit was set loose, you know, a number of decades ago. The spirit that simply sees reality and says we don't like that reality, will dismiss that reality, sees the truth and says that truth inconveniences us with its reality, so we're going to simply dismiss that reality and that truth and deny that it's reality and truth. That took place a couple decades ago when our society legalized abortion. How in the world do you legalize abortion while you claim at the same time to be a moral upstanding society? In other words, how do you justify the murder of unborn, developing little human beings in the womb? How do you justify that? And call it, oh, we're not murderers. We're not, not, we're not like the Nazis, you know. Well, you're murdering the innocent and those who are in the womb. But don't you see, that's not little human beings. They're just fetus. We will just simply call that which is developing fetus. Human tissue, you know, like cancer cells, that's human, human tissue too. And when human tissue disturbs you and your, your, your wherewithal and inconveniences you, what do you do? You remove it. So that's all it is. It's just the removal of living human tissue. It's fetus, not a little human being. We're not murderers. Is that true, beloved? What's in the womb is just a fetus, some living human tissue? Of course it's not. And you know what? They know it's not. And you and I don't have to argue with them and try to persuade them. All you have to say to them, what you are terminating is a little human being. You are guilty of murder before the face of the living God, and he is going to judge you in the end. You will find out. And you've touched the button, and now it's time to silence you, because we will not have our consciences pricked and troubled by those kinds of charges. We'll deny they are true. And once you can take the reality of a living human being developing in the womb and say it's not a living human being, it's just a fetus, you can decide now we don't want a male to be a male. A male is a female. It's just a matter of the label. We have decided to change the word. 
you can play all kinds of, of games because being a male would inconvenience me. It stands between me and my pleasure and my perverted pleasure and nothing may stand between me and what pleases me and my perverted pleasure, not even truth and reality. And so away with such and you have the woke mentality justified. But understand, beloved, where this leads. If you can justify in your own mind by the change of words those immoralities, those perversions, and those iniquities, then you can also turn against those who are Christians and say they must be silenced. They must be sentenced, and if they will not be silent and, and submit to the sentencing, they must be executed. And it's not going to be murder, my no. Society is an organism, isn't it? We are a body. As society, we're an organism and a body. And when something disturbs the body and, and the organism, then what must you do to something that disturbs and troubles the body? You must remove it. So all we're doing by getting rid of the Christians is purging the body, you see, and purifying ourselves. It's good. In the name of the devil. That's the direction things are going, beloved, and that's where it's going to go and is taking place. Now I want to pause. I want to inform you that I preached this sermon 11 years ago. This text, 11 years ago, at the end of 2012, the beginning of 2013. Not the same sermon because, of course, I reflected upon a whole different history. It was the year of the marking of the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, which has its own emblem. But 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I preached this sermon. Imagine if in that sermon, 11 years ago, I stood before the congregation and said, you know what? In 10 years, you're going to have people saying male or female and can go into women's locker rooms and showers, and females are males or animals, if, and you have to cater to that and honor it, or you're going to be penalized by the powers that be. You would say, Reverend, we know evil has to develop. But you're reading the wrong books, we think. Conspiracy theories, you know, no one, there was no holocaust, no one landed on the moon. You're, you're, you're going off track. We live in 21st century society if any society understands biology and gender and chromosomes and DNA, it's the 21st century society. This is biology 101. It never happened. Where are we today? It's happened in 10 short years. Beyond comprehension, beloved, the horses are galloping at a furious rate and wickedness increases in alarming fashion and evil prevails and the ungodly rule. The foundations are shaken, you know, say, where shall the righteous stand? And do we even dare to promote what, what is righteous and true, to call attention to ourselves? And if we do, it's going to go down in defeat. It's going to be silenced. The kingdom of righteousness, how can it possibly prevail and how can we promote the kingdom in a way that it would grow as they had to build the temple? We might as well just tend to the material and the physical and agricultural and do the best we can and survive, right? 
Beloved, no, not right. Be strong, stand for your convictions, and promote that which is right and true, that which it has to do with the kingdom of righteousness, and the call to repentance, and the call to faith, and the call to godliness, and live according to your convictions, come what may, and whatever may come upon you, do to it, because in the end, this is the word of the Lord. I will overthrow the throne and the kingdoms. I will shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms of ungodliness and of this present world. That's the word of the Lord to Haggai, don't you see? In summary, the word is simply this, of course, those who are your enemies and would destroy you, and those who have the boldness to defy my name and associate the name of my son with perversion, I will come upon them and I will destroy them and bring them crashing down to utter defeat. And I will bring victory in the end to those who uphold righteousness and truth. Because I am Jehovah God, the God of hosts. All things, that's an interesting phrase, the Lord of hosts, you know, again and again, means all things, all armies are mine, even the stars of the heavens are mine and will fight against, in the end, wickedness, sin, unrighteousness, and the kingdom of Antichrist and Satan himself. I have all things in my hand as the Lord of hosts. But notice, I will shake the heavens. I will overthrow the thrones. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms. I will take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make thee as a vessel. I have chosen thee. I, I. I, who am Jehovah, will see to it. By that reference, beloved, understand, he does not say, I will do it all and there's nothing that is required of you. He's not saying that. I will do it all, so just sit back and I will take care of it all. He says, I will do it, power, so that as you serve me, I will even use you. That's why I tied in with that, that text, be strong. Continue to be building, continue to be laboring, continue to stand for what is righteous and true, because I will make sure even to use you as a means to accomplish this great victory, because I am who I am, and in the end I will have the victory and take them down and defeat them who you cannot defeat. But labor on, because I will put it to good use for the service of the kingdom. But notice... Beloved, that phrase, I will shake the heavens and the earth, that goes back, you understand, to what we read in verse 6. Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. In other words, in a little while, I'm going to do it, not right away, but soon I will do it. I will do it in my own time, in a little while, in my own time, soon, not right away, but I will do it. I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and what he says really in this passage is once again I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the dry land once again in other words I have done it 
once before, and I'm going to do it again. The question is, he's re the point is, he's referring to something he accomplished in the past, and now he's going to accomplish it on an even greater scale in the future. What is he referring to in the past? Possibly two things. It could have been the flood, the great judgment of the flood that overthrew the whole of the ungodly and saved eight people alive in the ark. But more likely, it has reference to Egypt. Notice that in verse 5. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remaineth among you. And how the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, the invincible. They were but slaves. They couldn't possibly be delivered, leave Egypt. Egypt had all the power, and the Lord God came with those ten plagues, and he devastated the land, if you recall. And they pushed them out of the land, and then he led them of all places to the Red Sea, Canyon walls on both sides, and Pharaoh and his hosts behind them. And where is the wisdom in this, Israel? Of oh, Moses, you brought us to a dead end. Better we had remained in Egypt. We're going to be slaughtered one, slaughtered one in all. And Moses lifts the staff and says, Behold the power of Jehovah God. And he makes that way through the sea. And they pass over on dry ground which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. In one fell soup, beloved, the wisdom of the Lord revealed, and the salvation of his people coincides with the judgment upon Pharaoh, and they vanish in a moment. Such is the way of the Lord. He says, I'm going to do that again. He's talking in terms, of course, of the coming of the Messiah. But he has in mind what is referred to in Hebrews chapter 12, the very conclusion of Hebrews chapter 12, the final judgment. Christ appearing at the end of the age, at the end of the world, in the great catastrophic judgment when the whole of the world will convulse following the the great war of battle of Armageddon, Christ appearing on the clouds, and as he comes in his power, of course, the very foundations of the world are shaken, and the buildings and the kingdoms of men come crashing down, and Revelation tells that they see the power of Christ Jesus coming as he shakes their kingdoms, and they cry out, mountains fall on us, hills cover us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And there is the destruction and the end of the ungodly, and the salvation of those who have promoted righteousness and truth in the kingdom of our Lord. That's the climactic conclusion. That's spoken of in the book of Hebrews here. And we read in verse 12 of him who spake on the earth, verse 25, such shall not, shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. Notice, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, the apostle says to the, those whom he's writing, the, of the Jewish and Gentile church who are in themselves becoming discouraged by all the opposition and the prevailing evil and so on. Listen, my people of the early New Testament church, yet once more, notice that once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven and this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. 
of the things that are made, all things that are made. Creation itself, you see, the kingdoms of men, that those things which cannot be shaken of the kingdom of Christ remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve, labor on behalf of God, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. He will have the last word. He will have the final victory. He will consume those who dare defy his name and seek to destroy his church. His name is Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. Yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth and all that they contain in judgment unto salvation and victory. That's the culmination, beloved. But the culmination of this great judgment was not the great decisive judgment. The decisive judgment of which Haggai prophesies occurred when the great son of David, the promised Messiah, not only was born, but lived and walked to Golgotha and hung upon the cross and prayed for his people on the cross, Father, forgive them, and paid the price for his beloved people, and then at the conclusion of his serving the wrath of God in our stead, in our behalf, said, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And there was a great earthquake coinciding, did it not, precisely as he exhaled and breathed his last. And there was a great earthquake. And the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom and the centurion said surely this was a righteous man the son of God the display of the power beloved that showed that he was done with the Jewish nation as a Jewish nation as an instrument of the establishment of his kingdom and it was going to another people the Gentiles the elect from the nations of the earth as the gospel would gather them and make them his church and the promoters of his kingdom and of his, of his labor, don't you see? Judgment on the Jewish nation as it went apostate. But that wasn't the only earthquake, was it? That was Friday afternoon. Early on the first day of the week, beloved, three days, we may say three days later, there was another great earthquake, wasn't there? He tore the bars away, Christ Jesus our Lord. He arose from the dead, a victor o'er the dark domain. And there was a great earthquake, and the angel rolled away the stone from Christ's sepulcher, but other stones were rolled away as well, and we read that there were dead who were raised from the dead, and they walked as saints and were known to some of the citizens of the, of the, of the city, and then were raptured up into heaven having to do with the power over death itself, earth-shaking. But when that great earthquake happened, beloved, Sunday morning, that was now is the judgment of this world. The kingdoms of, this, of, of the world have become the kingdoms of this Christ. He has the power, you see, to ascend to heaven and to open the seven-sealed book and become the Lord of all on the virtue of his work and the display of his power. And the, and, and the point is, beloved, that when he arises from the dead in this earthquake, 
the foundations of the kingdom of men have really been cracked and fissured and they're simply waiting to come crashing down at Christ's appointed time. But there's buildings, as it were, in which live residents who have to be saved from that building lest they perish with its de demolition. And those, those citizens in that building are the elect. And the gospel has to go through the corridors of the halls, you see, to call them forth. And those who are elect with the Spirit come out of the doors and they escape out of the building. And when the last of the citizens of those condemned buildings of the kingdom of this world have been freed and escape, Christ will say, it's finished. He will appear. And the whole of the edifice of the kingdoms of the nations of this world, beloved, will come crashing down. That's the word of the Lord. And out of the rebel, rubble and the residue, if you will, he will then build up his own everlasting kingdom. That which Hebrew says cannot, cannot be moved because it's based upon the spirit and the, and the blood and the work of Christ Jesus himself. But meantime... Between that great decisive earth-shaking event of the cross and of the resurrection and that culmination earthquaking event of the final judgment of Christ returning and bringing down the kingdoms of Antichrist, other earthquakes take place. We're in the age of earthquakes, not simply physical, ge geographical, but spiritual earthquakes, beloved. The gospel goes forth. And when the gospel goes forth, then this great bass soloist begins to sing. You've heard the Messiah. I always revel when they get to this point in the Ma Messiah, the oratorio. And you have a bass of quality with a good set of lungs. And he begins to sing the words, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And that voice just reverberates. And you can hear almost the power in the voice and in the words. This is the word of the Lord, you see. And he is the great singer, you see. Christ Jesus is the great singer. And when he goes forth singing, to save that he does something. What he does is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice, to the pulling down of strongholds. That's the preaching of the gospel below. That's the great bass soloist, if you will, Christ Jesus himself, speaking through the words of a man like Saul, like Paul of Tarsus, or whomever went forth as an evangelist. And what comes crashing down in the hearts of an individual is the kingdom of Satan. Because until a man has been regenerated, we're under the power of the kingdom of Satan. He holds a man, you see, imprisoned and it's like the great earthquake in the in Philippi and when you remember, remember what, what Saul he was chained and the chains fell off his hands vibrated right off his, and he was set free that's a symbol you see of the power of Christ Jesus when he comes with his with his voice with his gospel the great vase, vase 
vibrato, and there's an earthquake in the heart. You might call it a heartquake. And one's heart is broken when turns to Christ and one is set free. So he's still working. There's still clusters of earthquakes, beloved, taking place until finally the great climactic earthquake will take place when Christ is pleased to return. In the meantime, we as churches must be doing what we can to spread this gospel, the word, being used by him to gather his own because he will not come again, as I have said this morning, until the last of the souls have been saved. And so this great promise through the mouth of the prophet of what God will do through the promised Messiah and overthrow the chariot and those that ride in them and the horse and their riders shall come down every one of them by the sword of his brother and utter defeat. Interesting, you know, that after Pharaoh and his hosts were destroyed, you have the song of Miriam, and you go to the passage right after the deliverance through the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his hosts are destroyed, and the song goes up about the horse and the rider have been overthrown, huh? using that old military language, but speaking of the complete and utter defeat of the enemies of God's people and the salvation that he secures, and then, beloved, the triumph of righteousness over evil and perversion. God be thanked. And he seals this with a promise. I will take the Ozerbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Reference is made to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel as the son of Shealtiel, does that a number of times in the, in the passage. And part of the reason for that is who Shealtiel was. He was the product, the offspring of the royal line of David through Jeconiah, who was the grandson of Josiah, that righteous king who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon along with Daniel and his three friends early. And then he grows up in Babylon, but he's the remaining royal descent of David, Josiah, Jeconiah. And he marries one from the spiritual line of David. There are two lines, you know. There's the royal line that goes to Joseph. There's the spiritual line We read the Matthew line just briefly this morning. There's a spiritual line in Luke chapter 3. That's Mary's line. Every one of those names was an elect child of God. It's the covenant that goes all the way back to Adam. Every one name was a spiritual, redeemed, saved child of God. That's the spiritual line that ran parallel to David's royal line. David's royal line, as you know, had unbelievers mixed with believers. Not the spiritual line. That was Mary's line. But they joined for one generation in Shealtiel. They had Zerubbabel. He's the product of the spiritual and the royal line. So he ties him in with Shealtiel. And then from Zerubbabel will come a royal line continued and a spiritual line as well. The first son, the royal line. The second son, the spiritual line that reaches out to Mary. So the reference here to Zerubbabel as the son of Shealtiel, of the spiritual and the royal line, a prefiguration then, of course, of Christ himself. A signet ring. He himself is not the Messiah, 
that he represents the Messiah, that great son of David. And a signet ring, of course, is one that a king puts on his finger and a decree, a decree is made and it's written on a scroll and they wrap the scroll and they put wax on it and then with his royal ring he seals that scroll with the words and that becomes the law of the kingdom, the policy, the decree that rules the kingdom. And that's Christ, don't you see? This morning, the Lamb, he opens the seven-sealed book and he governs the whole of New Testament history with his decrees, don't you see? It comes to pass because Christ says, this will come to pass and that will come to pass. And this is how it's going to occur. And we have to have that confidence, beloved, that's what's happening today is according to the will of Christ, even with the mounting wickedness and the prevailing of evil and, and the domination of ungodly men and things don't seem to go our way the way we vote and decide. That may be our desire, our well, our vote, but that's not Christ's decree because he has a wiser way, a deeper purpose, and he will use it even if at first we are discouraged. He will use it to bring judgment upon those who oppose his church and his righteousness and the name of his God. And in the end, beloved, work it in such a way that those who stand for righteousness and truth and will suffer for his name's sake will have the victory. Thus saith the Lord, Jehovah, Lord of hosts. I have done it before. You have seen my wonders in Egypt and the deliverance from Babylon, the resurrection from the cross, the power over death. And you will see it once again. Believe and live and be strong and labor in his name Go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil as you stand for the right. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks. Give us encouragement. May we not be a people of fear the face of men, but simply go forth in obedience, knowing thou wilt avert the evil or turn it to the profit of thy people. Thou art a God faithful. So keep us, we pray, in the way of godliness and in the way of truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.